0: Welcome to the October 2022 edition of Outbeat News In Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, earlier this month, I got to travel to Denver, Colorado for the annual Matthew Shepard Foundation Gala, and I had the honor to present this year's Spirit of Matthew Award to a young man named Xander Morix. The award was given to him for his extraordinary activism fighting against Florida's Don't Say Gay Law. Xander was a high school senior when the law was passed, and he's now a freshman at Harvard. He's here with us tonight to share his story. So stay with us. It's coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio news for this Sunday, October 23rd, 2022. This is Greg Maraglia with your Outbeat Radio news for the week of October 23rd, 2022. A gay couple in Boise, Idaho spoke out last week about the pride flag in front of their home being destroyed, now for a third time. Brett Perry and his husband, John Shirt, have lived on their street in the north end neighborhood of Boise since 2011. In 2020, the first of three pride flags the couple has hung on their porch was stolen. The second was defaced, and on October 5th of this year, the third one was set on fire. After the two flags were stolen and vandalized, the couple didn't report the episodes to the police. But this time, Schert says, it felt like the vandalism was spiraling. He said, quote, We reported this incident because burning feels so much like an escalation. It's quite dangerous and our house could have caught on fire. This feels more hateful. Schert added that an LGBT liaison officer from Boise Police Department responded within minutes, took statements, and the couple and neighbors collected evidence. According to the department, North End residents have reported damage or stolen pride flags to police seven times since 2022. Schert and Perry say they've been humbled by the support they receive from officials and neighbors. In fact, two elderly neighbors knocked on their door and delivered a prayer shawl. And Schert has a message for the vandals as well. He said, quote, You are the domestic terrorist who committed this act. You failed, and we will never stop living or loving Boise. And now hundreds of new progress flags are going up in response to your cowardly actions. Love wins. And in Michigan, a new bill seeks to brand gender-affirming parents and doctors as child abusers and even proposes life in prison as a possible consequence for facilitating gender-affirming care. House Bill 6454 would amend the penal code in that state and define child abuse to include someone who knowingly or intentionally consents to obtains, or assists with gender transition procedures for a child. The bill includes any hormones or puberty blockers in its definition of gender transition procedures. Puberty blockers are reversible medications that delay the onset of puberty so that a transgender young person can have more time to explore their gender identity before the permanent effects of puberty occur, and they have been shown to decrease lifelong suicide risk in transgender people who want them. And the Centers for Disease Control are reporting a dramatic drop in new infections of monkeypox. In fact, they report an 85% drop since the peak last August. That's the latest seven-day average data from the CDC, indicating a drop from 443 reported cases at the height of the outbreak on August 6th to just 60 cases reported on August 12th. Experts attribute the drop to a variety of factors. The monkeypox vaccine, with an efficacy rate of 85%, helped slow down the virus. And while the monkeypox infection rates continue to level off both in San Francisco and across the United States, health officials from the state level on down are expanding vaccine eligibility in order to continue getting shots into arms. Expanding eligibility, however, doesn't mean officials are making the vaccine available to a wider general public, which they believe is not warranted. The San Francisco Department of Health issued an advisory on October 12th, in conjunction with the California Department of Health's recent vaccine eligibility expansion, which, if anything, puts a finer point on those who are most in need of a monkeypox vaccine. The vaccine requires two doses about a month apart. San Francisco Department of Health identified three specific groups to be targeted. This includes people living with HIV, people who are taking or who are eligible to take PrEP for HIV prevention, and clinicians who are likely to collect laboratory specimens from people with monkeypox. San Francisco health officials continue to reach out to people of color in the Black and Latinx community, especially those men who have sex with men, as this group has been particularly hit hard by the outbreak. San Francisco Health Officer Dr. Susan Phillip told the Bay Area Reporter that men who have sex with men are still the far largest group affected by the monkeypox outbreak. And finally, October is LGBTQ History Month, and next Sunday, right here on KRCB Radio, we'll have an Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News in Depth with special guest, author and LGBT historian Eric Marcus. We'll be talking about one of the most significant decades of LGBT history, the 1970s. So much history was made right here in the Bay Area, so be sure to join us at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. For a calendar of LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moraglio. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. My guest tonight was a senior at Pine View High School in Sarasota, Florida, when the now infamous Don't Say Gay Law was passed by the state's legislature. Xander Morix is an openly gay young man and was class president at the time the law was passed he became a flourishing activist, and he's now the key plaintiff in the Don't Say Gay lawsuit against Governor DeSantis and the state of Florida. He's also the founder and executive director of the Social Equity and Education Initiative, also known as C, which has grown into a movement of over 2,000 organizers across the United States just since 2019. Xander, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to talk to you. You've been doing so much to uh, help so many of aspects of our cause, uh, especially in Florida. But before we get to talking about your work, uh, tell us a bit about where you grew up and give us the backstory and, and when you realized you were gay.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, which is politically a polarized part of this country. It was written about in the Washington Post as one of the most locally controversial political spaces that exists right now. So, for students, for children, the only space for communication, for collaboration that is guarantees you is public schooling. And so, when that journey began for me and I kind of developed alongside my peers and I had conversations and more and more people began being open and began expressing themselves and they began doing that partially because school is a space that is inherently right now more progressive and the youth is more progressive and the people there generally educators are more progressive and so the space there is also more affirming for youth that mm-hmm. might want to explore facets of their identity. And so when you start finding community and start having those conversations in this tight space that is kind of meant for human beings to do that, to explore and understand themselves, that's when really for me, I started to kind of figure out, oh, okay, I might be gay. And I think that it was a really double-sided childhood where in my school community, I felt accepted and I felt nurtured and I really explored who I was, but in my general community... I felt tense and there is this constant tension of just hatred almost in the air. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you middle school and high school, when you're really coming through these pivotal times when Trump has just been elected president, right? And that creates this huge, all-encompassing, emboldening call to people who don't support LGBTQ people or people who don't support people of color or people who are hateful. When it gives this huge bat signal that, no, it's okay to be hateful now. And that's already so prominent in your community, it became very aggressive and very volatile. And it was definitely a weird dichotomy to navigate growing up.
0: I'm always struck by the generation, you know, the the space that exists because I'm getting ready to turn 60, right? And so when I hear you talk about sort of coming of age and realizing who you were and saying that was the time Trump got elected, I'm just trying to imagine what that would have been like. So give give me some context. Were you seventh grade, eighth grade when that happened?
1: I was... Yeah, I was in the sixth or seventh grade, so it was it was fresh, and it was it was really strange because you're you're you you we had I had just heard stories about like oh, gay marriage is legalized. You're like you don't really understand what's going on, but you, I have these concepts of progress, and then this 2016 election is the exact opposite of progress. Right. Like, it seems to be this such a stark contrast of no, we're going backwards, and. It, it was just really, really scary, and so you kind of hold your breath and you you wait to see what what parts of this are real and what really matters and what's going mm-hmm. on. And unfortunately, in Sarasota, Florida. It was a tidal wave. That election caused every person who kind of agreed with him to now fully agree with him. It caused everyone who had these hateful ideologies brewing under the surface to say, oh, now, now we're the dominant. Now we're the priority. Now we're on top. I'm going to come out and I'm going to push all of these views to the surface because that's where they are now. And I'm going to be accepted for them. And I'm going to find my community, just like how queer people through expression find their community, hateful people in Sarasota found their community by expressing their hate. And that happened in school boardrooms and that became a really unfortunate link to education where this space for community conversation was manipulated and turned into something really ugly and aggressive for this conservative hotspot where we energize voters and where we mm-hmm. built a lot of this conservative rhetoric to m- create momentum around campaigns and to create a more cohesive base of voters. and. It was really smart of the conservative population to use school boardrooms to do that. But what it did for me is, again, the only level of local politics that directly is in my face as we're witnessing this huge shift in 2016 of, oh, my gosh, are we ignoring all of this progress?
0: Thinking about your school, then, were there gay-straight alliances? I mean, did that exist? I don't hear they're everywhere.
1: I mean, there isn't anymore. Um, But there was a gay-straight alliance. Um, It wasn't robust. I think there was a small number of individuals. I know I didn't really participate. Um, I think for there to be a space for queer students and queer children to actually create community and actually feel liberated and have Mm -hmm. productive conversations, that has to happen in a space that they're autonomous in and they can feel as though they have that sovereignty over themselves and over their identity and over their body, and that doesn't happen in school. And so GSAs, even before Don't Say Gay, weren't always productive in places like Sarasota, because when the community is putting this pressure and culture of hate, and then the school has weird pressures and cultures of hate, and then almost no one is participating in the society, and you can tell that everyone's looking at you when you say that you are a part of it, and there's this stigma, and everything collapses on top of itself. it's, It's not a rewarding or comforting or educational space. So I think that that's unfortunate because you can't expect a club that gives goldfish and weekly one-hour meetings on Thursdays to overcome the hateful culture of a million-person population.
0: Right, right. And I don't know that the stigma around GSAs is necessarily unique, you know, in terms of what you're describing. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of studies that have looked at you know, will gay people, openly gay students go to an openly gay GSA kind of a, an environment? And, and a lot don't. They're out in other places, but they don't want to be seen, you know, associating with those clubs well, on campus. You
1: also, there's this fear that if you are in the GSA and there's five straight people and one gay person, right. that all of a sudden you're the token gay person that is there to make everyone feel like everything's okay and there is progress and we're all smiles and That's scary because then not only are you not perpetuating progress, but then you're preventing it by creating this image that everything is fine when it's not. And so I think that, I don't know, you definitely have to be cognizant and fearful of becoming a puppet uh, Mm -hmm. in the activist space, in the youth space, in any space where you are a queer person, where queer people don't want to be, you are at risk of becoming a puppet.
0: Sure, sure. Well, I read that Pineview School, where you went, was ranked as one of the nation's top schools. Uh, What made it that way?
1: So Pineview is a gifted institution, meaning you have to test in to get in. And that creates an array of problems because tests in schools are inherently unequal because if your family doesn't have the resources or agency to Mm -hmm. ensure the at get that testing, then you're not going to have a chance to go there. And so the population there is pretty privileged, very white. And I think because it's also two through 12, no one there is really aware that this level of education is unique and is incredibly privileged. And so then there's no sense of responsibility to diffuse that into the community or to create partnerships or to think, oh, how can we kind of create more equity involved in this level of education? I don't think there was... There wasn't that conversation. And so Pineview is one of the best schools because it concentrates all of these intelligent um students with resources to come to a space and to leverage those resources and leverage that intelligence to do amazing things. And that's what brought me to that school. I had I I, I have spent my whole life in public schools and um I had gone to public schools that were underfunded and mm-hmm. that have the resourcing or the support that a place like Pineview does. And so my family was incredibly wonderful and we were privileged enough to literally move counties, cities, houses, everything, to then go to Pineview so that I could have a shot at a real education at a level of high quality education, not real education, so that I could have a shot at this level of high quality education. And that's why Pineview is amazing because it has this name that draws people to it.
0: Sure. Well, it sounds like a pretty impressive place. And you chose to come out to a teacher first, the first person that you told. Uh, so obviously, that's great evidence of how important it is to have out role models in the school. But what made you pick that teacher?
1: Well, this teacher was openly gay. And this teacher had those conversations and teach that this teacher... When you grow up in a community like Sarasota and there is not visible LGBTQ plus representation and there are not positive conversations in the community, mm-hmm. you actively have to seek them out and you have to be really responsible for ensuring that you're safe and that you're cared for and that you're loved. And so one of the people that I sought out was originally my PE teacher, Coach mm-hmm. Ballard, who is a teacher, Miss Ballard. And she was openly gay and she discussed what being gay in Florida was like and what being gay in the school system was like. And she discussed uh, her experiences with other gay students and she discussed um, what the process was like for a lot of students. And she just made it not scary and she made it not intimidating. And I think she knew that I was gay and she helped me not learn that I was gay, but become okay with the fact that I was gay and she provided a space for me to just exist without the stress of other people perceiving how I was existing and I think the analogy I like to use is you You don't want to give your very first performance on Broadway. You want to rehearse it. You do not want to give the biggest show of your life the very first time. And so when you think about coming out to your family, these are human beings that have known you your entire life. When you realize that you're gay, it's a oh my goodness moment because you've lived your entire life as yourself. How did you not realize this absolutely fundamental part of who you are Your family members are going to have that same reaction because they've spent their entire, well, your entire life with them. Like they have seen you and experienced your life for the entirety of your life. And so to then tell them, oh, you've missed this crucial element to who I am for my entire life it's scary. It's horrifying. You wonder how they're going to react. You wonder if they're going to start analyzing and assessing every choice you've ever made and putting it through a lens of, oh, he's gay. And you worry, oh my gosh, they're going to think that I'm different, but I'm not. And it's impossible not to have those fears and to have those choices because again, they have witnessed you live your entire life, but they haven't witnessed you live your life authentically. And that's not their fault and that's not your fault, but That is still an incredibly difficult thing to overcome. And so when you have a figure in a school setting who has been supportive, who has allowed you to have those conversations, who has created an affirming environment, and who is openly queer, that is going to be an immediate draw to someone like me, who's in a community like Sarasota. And that's a draw for people For queer people across the country, so many people come out to teachers or come out to people at school first because of the unique environment that school creates to have those conversations intentionally and to create a more affirming and progressive space. And so... What my governor did was he said, oh my gosh, there are these spaces across my state where people are becoming affirmed and are becoming comfortable in their identities and where these powerful educational conversations are happening and people are unlearning their hatred and people are learning to love themselves. That can't happen. How do we prevent powerful, important, productive, progressive conversation from happening? Well, we'll just say they can't have any conversation about it at all.
0: Yeah, well, that's... You you are the example of why this uh, new law is so damaging. Um, now, you described having a very wonderful family and supportive family, yet in a prior interview I read that you said, or you, you described coming out to them uh, as being tremendously scary.
1: It, was. it and,
0: was. And I get that, but what happened? How did it go?
1: So I think that it's important that – queer people when they share their coming out stories do so as authentically as possible because I heard so many stories that were perfect and I heard so many stories that were terrible and I began feeling like those were the only two outcomes and I knew that my situation wasn't going to be perfect and so I assumed that it was only going to be terrible and it prevented me from coming out for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I came out with a PowerPoint presentation. I sat my family down on the couch I put a PowerPoint onto the TV and I went through slides of what we could say, what we couldn't say. There was a timeline. There was videos on the difference between sex and gender. There was a pronoun section. There was a history of slur section. We went through all of it. And I had to do it very, very objectively by the books because while my family leaves with love and while there is so much love in my family, there are also things that we have to unlearn. And there are things that we have to change and adjust for us to live as the family cohesively and functionally. And I knew that that was going to be difficult and that was going to be a challenge. And I think that that's okay. I think that if you expect your family to be absolutely perfect, even though they should be, and I'm not saying that all families shouldn't be absolutely affirming and accepting, they should be, but to expect that they all will be is not reasonable. And so I I, I kept it very objective. I put it all out there and I just had a couple hour debrief of, look, I am gay. Here's what that means. Here's how we're going to move forward. There will probably be problems. And there were, we had lots of fights. We had lots of miscommunication. I felt hurt and sad and scared well after that process. But if I hadn't started that conversation with them, and if I hadn't tried to integrate my full self into this family, then we wouldn't have an opportunity to grow or figure stuff out. And we're still figuring it out. Um, And so of course it was scary. And it is still scary, but I don't think I would have ever had the courage to do that or figured out that I needed to do it with the PowerPoint or decided how I wanted to do it or when I wanted to do it if I hadn't done it with a teacher first. And if I hadn't done it with friends first, it was when I came out to my friends at school and they had questions that I realized, oh, my parents are going to have the same questions. Here's how I need to answer it. And it was these little things that eventually made it more comfortable for me to take the steps to come out to my family because a huge part about coming out is the unknown. You have no idea. I mean you have an idea, but you don't really know how people are going to react and mm-hmm. you don't know what the consequences are going to be. And so if you can eliminate as many unknown factors as possible. If you know what you're going to cover, when you're going to do it, and you can start chopping away little bits at this and that only comes with coming out to other people first then the process becomes less intimidating and it seems more just like a conversation that you can have. But it it, it doesn't come to that until you come out to other people first.
0: I love the PowerPoint idea. Uh, that is the first time I've heard that. And I teach an LGBT studies class where we talk about coming out. I may have to add that to my list of approaches. It,
1: it really worked for me. I, it was just, like they sat down. I clicked on the first slide. It just announced I am gay. And then we went to the second slide and we just, we did timelines because we went over, I was like, okay, these are the houses that we've lived in. Like these are the pets we've had. These are like all the trips we've been on, blah, blah, blah. And like, here's my narrative. This is when I figured out I was gay. This is when this happened. This is when this happened, blah, 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 blah. And then we talked about like gender and pronouns. And I know that you guys feel this way. And I know you guys think this, here's why I think this is wrong. Here's why this is factually wrong. Here's how we're gonna focus on this. And then pause for questions, pause for snacks pause for bathroom break and just make it very, because I also, I think that a lot of times when you get caught up in this emotional conversation and you know, it's going to be scary. Uh, the reaction is just to get it over with. So you say it, you get it, and then everyone's a little bit uncomfortable. And so you never have a conversation about it again. And it just sits there in a chest on the counter, um, where everyone's like, Oh yeah, he's gay. And then no one really talks about it until Thanksgiving when your aunt asks, and then it's really awkward. And so I think Forcing the conversation from the get-go is really important because something will always come up in life, but having a plan for you and your family about how you're going to navigate your new identity or your newly shared identity is important. I think that that's not discussed a lot, and I think that it leads a lot of people to have difficult relationships with their family when you don't create a plan because it's going to change stuff. You're going to communicate and live together a little bit differently. And so just acknowledging those differences and how you want to behave around them is super important. And it's a little bit awkward and it's a little bit painful, but you should have those conversations. Yeah. So let's, that's my. everyone coming out.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Uh, So let's just imagine that it's 2022, but you're now back at Pine Valley. How would things have been different? Do you think for you?
1: It sounds melodramatic, but I don't think I would have come out Mm. if I hadn't had those conversations, if people around me weren't having those conversations, if a teacher hadn't been able to create an affirming environment, then I, A, would never have explored that I could be gay, and B, I never would have felt comfortable with the fact that I was. So I don't think I would have come out. I don't think I would be here right now. I have no idea what my life would look like. And that's what's at risk. I don't. I don't think there has ever been a question that this that educational spaces are one of the most fundamental parts of every human being's life. And so to destroy an element of that for an entire population of human beings, of course, that's going to have life changing impacts and it would have changed my life. And it's heartbreaking and horrifying to think about. And I think that's, I know that's why I am so invested in this movement and invested in this fight, even though I am not in Florida anymore, because my life would have been radically worse. And I know that lives right now are being radically worsened and to not do anything would feel impossible.
0: Yeah. You're, you're a living classic example of why this is such an important issue. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, lives every day are being impacted by this uh, in a negative well, I way. Know
1: that, uh, I have, we have people reach out to the initiative and to myself all the time with stories about here's what's happening. Can we have a conversation? What should we do here? And I have a meeting later this week with a parent whose daughter is really uncomfortable being in just school anymore and she's thinking about homeschooling. And it's just. There are so many people that have no idea what to do, because how could you know what to do? There is no plan for this. And so there is this huge culture of fear and unpreparedness for families with queer students or for families with queer parents in Florida right now. And it's disgusting and it's heartbreaking and we're doing everything that we can, but we receive messages every day and it's it's overwhelmingly sad.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wanna come back to to your organization too in a little bit, but but you got to serve as student body president Yes. Uh, And that was a very important, pivotal uh, piece of your story here. You were out when you ran for president?
1: Yes. So I was the first class president at Pine View to ever be elected all four years of high school. And then I was also the first to be openly gay, which was a big shift for myself and for the campus. Um, I originally wasn't going to run. Uh, A couple friends convinced me to, and I really decided that If I was going to share myself with the school on this level, that I needed to do it all the way and that I needed to Mm -hmm. be myself. If I was going to platform my life for this campus and I was going to start investing my life really publicly into our community, then I needed to do it authentically and I needed to do it all the way. I couldn't keep giving parts of myself to what I was doing. And so I came out in the campaign, essentially, like as I announced I was running was also when I was like, oh, also I'm gay. Oh, wow. it was, it, it was really stressful and it was really weird. And I was the last candidate to announce they were running. I think there were like 14 of us and it was absolutely wild. And at the end of the day, we, we crossed that finish line first and I took that and I ran with it. I changed how we handled student government a lot. Instead of it just being fundraising, I thought about ways that we could integrate ourselves into the community and take on community service work. Because I think that there's a responsibility when you are the number 1 school in Florida sitting there and when you are incredibly privileged and when you are incredibly unequal there are responsibilities that you have to your community to try to take down some of the barriers that have created why you are so successful and i think that people were excited by that and so we continued on for the next 3 years and it was incredibly formative to who i am as an advocate and as a leader and as a gay person and it was also without sounding conceited pretty formative to the pine View community um student government runs differently now people do community like do incorporate community service work into what they do and yeah
0: that's awesome and at what point did this don't say gay bill enter into the story of the, your presidency
1: really at the very last minute so All college apps had been submitted. Second semester had just began. I am a second semester senior who has submitted all of his college applications. I am done with high school. I am vacationing. I am going to skip class. I am going to chill out for the next couple months before summer because it's over. Who cares? Mm -hmm. And boom, the don't say gay bill arrives and my life is thrown into an entirely different direction. But honestly, my class presidency was not involved with the work I did with Don't Say Gay. Inherently, it couldn't be. I think that collisions with those two roles as an advocate and as the class president, obviously, were seen with stuff like my graduation speech and with the walkout. But I didn't really leverage my role as class president to do anything about it as much as I did as executive director of C.
0: Got it. So... We've been covering this story uh, you know on our news segment since its inception. But for our listeners who really don't know the details of what this law actually prohibits, can you explain the nitty-gritty of it?
1: <coughs> it is nitty-gritty. It is a ugly, gross little law that essentially states that <sighs> oh It is a doozy. So I'll start with the overarching idea that is so fundamental to understanding why they don't say gay law is dangerous, which is that this law was written to be abused. The language in this legislation is undefined, it is unclear, and it is intentionally designed to be that way. If you're looking at a piece of healthcare legislation that is deciding how money is going to go to human beings. I guarantee you conservative policymakers are not going to leave leeway for you to accidentally get an extra $10,000 or to debate what this word could possibly mean. Every detail is spelled out to infinity. But when you look at the do Say Gay law, things like classroom instruction are never defined and things like conversation and all of these ideas that are really abstract and that are prominent in all elements of education are never defined so that because they are prominent and inherently important to all parts of education that when they aren't defined and that when it is so nebulous and that when it is so abstract, that they can just shut it all down at once. And so this happens through the enforcement mechanism, which is the second core part to understanding why the don't say gay law is dangerous, which is that any parents can sue a school district if they feel as though a teacher or an administrator or someone on school campus has broken the don't say gay law. And so what that does is when you have all of these undefined terms, when you have this abstract legislation, when you have parents that can trigger off this response at any point in time, what the lawmakers did is they then backed off and said, okay, teachers, okay, administrators, you decide what we meant. We're not ever going to define these abstract words. We're never going to figure out this really confusing law. We're going to force you to do it. But if you mess up, any parents in Florida, these same parents that have been creating an absolute mess of our school boardrooms, these same parents that have gone nationally famous for being very aggressive, for being very politically polarizing, these same parents can now decide if you are fired, can now decide if this school district is going to owe tens of thousands of dollars. They can now decide if you're going to be involved in a lawsuit. So you better play it really safe. And so what is the obvious consequence of that is what's happening is teachers and administrators out of fear are setting up these policies of no okay if they could confuse anything as saying gay if they could at all punish us for having any elements of conversation or even getting close to these ideas we have to stay as far away from them as humanly possible and so what's happening county by county district by district is schools are shutting down all lgbtq plus conversation in all spaces because there's no other choice it's horrifying and it's sad and it's heartbreaking and it's it's evil. It's actually wicked. An original part of the legislation was that teachers were going to have to out students to their parents and that got cut from the legislation. But what's happening now is it's being reintegrated in smaller, smaller levels. For example, my county was the very first to do it and it is absolutely heartbreaking. But Sarasota County has now added back in as county policy that teachers must out students to their parents and so the law is becoming even more evil as time progresses because of this culture of fear and because of this unknown that is building up and bubbling around it it's it's just evil
0: it sounds like uh and so as you talk to teachers what was their reaction
1: heartbreak fear One of the people responsible for creating the legislation literally complained about the fact that there seemed to be so many gay people in schools right now, and that there were so many people coming out in schools. The the people who created this legislation never hid what the intention of the legislation was supposed to do. It is supposed to scare gay kids from not being publicly gay. It is supposed to scare queer children and trans children from accepting themselves. And to do that, you have to create a scary environment. You have to create scary consequence. And you cannot do that without destroying the fundamental part of what school is, which is safety, which is community, which is love. And so you're ripping apart the essence of schools. And and it doesn't just you can't do that and just say you're harming the LGBTQ plus community. When you do that, you make a teacher unable to do their jobs effectively for every student and you make that community harmed for every student and so we're watching the souls of florida schools be sucked out and it's 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 apocalyptic it's genuine like you cannot feel it or or experience it unless you are there and it is horrifying to witness like you're literally watching teachers tear down lgbtq plus flags because they feel as though a parent of one of their students might end their careers
0: Yeah, this really harkens back to 1977 in California with Proposition 6.
1: And isn't it insane that it does in 2022?
0: No, I know. It's totally insane. And, you know, in my experience, there were no out gay teachers when I was in seventh grade, but I had two of them. And I tell this story often. The very first period of my first day at seventh grade was with a social science teacher, Ray Lippincott, and he was a storyteller of storytellers. Great guy to teach social science. And then my last period, of the last day, was with a guy named Walter Mast, who by all counts was a stereotypical gay man, you know. But he was an art teacher, and he was fantastic. And what I didn't know is that the two of them had been a couple for almost 40 years. Uh, they could not be out. They could not be a role model for me who's just discovering who he is. And Proposition 6 would have cost them both their jobs if it had and passed. W- if it had passed. And, and this seems... Th- it's a different it's a, obviously a different bill but it's it's as much or more damaging.
1: It almost isn't really different in terms of impact. We have
0: yeah.
1: teachers being emailed right now. Um, if you have pictures of you and your same-sex significant other on your desk, you're probably going to want to take those down and things like that. So we are having adults being forced back into the closet. We're having the same generations that did not have and then were given the right of marriage now being told that they should be shoved back into the closets and not be able to have informative conversations with their students. That's evil. That is disgusting. That is horrifying. And that should make everyone everywhere panic because adults and children are being censored in every Florida public school right now. Mm. Every single that's insane. And I say this all the time. Governor DeSantis picked a perfect place to set down an oppressive piece of legislation, The Florida public school system is the place that the majority of human beings that grow up in Florida will go through. The majority of human beings raised in Florida will at some point go through the Florida public school system. So he is effectively catching the majority of citizens growing up in his state in a hateful environment.
0: Mm. Ah, So... This happens, uh, you've got this role as a student body president. Clearly you have an understanding that you can't mix the, the uh, activist role with your role as the president, but you organized the walkout. So talk about that and how that all went down.
1: The Don't Say Gay walkouts were something we had been organizing across the state and the social equity and education initiative is an organization of 2000 organizers across the country. 1000 of us are in Florida. I founded this in 2019 and it has been the center of my life for since 2019. This, the C initiative is my baby. It is what I spend most of my time and energy doing when I have time and energy to spare. And it has been the vessel for all of my energy and pain and emotion for this process. It has been my source of empowerment And it has been my place to take this emotion and this hurt and this pain and turn it into something productive and to create change and to work with other people who are also experiencing this pain and this emotion so that we can collaboratively create change out of what is something really tragic. And one of the things that we did was organize walkouts across the state. And of course, we were going to have one at our school. And I was actually called in by my principal prior to the walkout and was told, to have it shut down and that they had had all flyers advertising the walkout ripped off of the walls. And it was a really Twilight Zone moment for me because this administrator has previously been pro-queer and has been an advocate for the community and has been very accepting. And this conversation came out of nowhere and I just sat down. And after working with him as class president for several years and after viewing him as a positive community figure and then told that he has had all Sege walkout flyers torn from walls and that I have to cancel it, it felt more than shocking. It felt dehumanizing and it was cold. And I left that room knowing two things. One, obviously, I'm not stopping this walkout. And two obviously the law is working and it hasn't even gone into effect. Mm. So we have the walkout. Hundreds of people come out of the classrooms. It was the biggest in the county. It was very quick. We airdrop information to people. We send everyone back. And I remember as I'm walking back to class after it's all been over, I remember sitting there and I remember thinking, I don't know why I thought about it. I don't know why I knew it, but I knew that this wasn't the end of what was happening in our community. I knew that something bad was going to happen. I didn't really know why, but all of the school security officers were out around the walkout, just staring. And all of the administrators were in the back row, just staring. And it felt as though everyone knew collectively that this was only the beginning and that something bad was coming. And I I can't even explain it, but everyone in Florida public schools Feels like they're preparing for a very mild war there is something coming to our schools it is going to take life it is going to be hard it is going to be cold we're not going to be able to do our jobs effectively you're not going to be able to communicate and be yourselves truthfully and it feels like a war and it was cold and it was scary and just sitting in the class after that was the most negatively surreal experience of my life Hmm.
0: well you obviously got a lot of visibility uh, from this and and Other aspects of your activism around the issue? Did you get calls from legislators or the governor's office?
1: Um, For the walkout, no. For, I I organized a a walkout where we, I I hosted a walkout um, where we, a couple days beforehand, where we unveiled the world's largest inclusive pride flag. We heard from state representatives. We heard from uh, the CEO of Florida Planned Parenthood, uh, from religious leaders, from our old mayor, and I think I've received political support from these figures throughout the past few years for our work. We've done disruptive protesting, campaign assistance, and tons of voter registration work for the last few years. And so that has always brought some positivity from more progressive politicians. Mm-hmm. I would say Representative Rayner has been incredibly supportive, and so has Representative Eskimani. Um, and I think that I'm always able to have that support from those people. Just because our work has been visible and productive for several years.
0: Well, that's good. I'm glad you're getting support because you've also said that you've gotten some pretty negative feedback, like death threats.
1: Yes. I received an overwhelming amount of death threats from March until present day. Like, it is insane. uh,
0: How do you navigate that? I mean, how do you? I don't. It's so
1: weird to talk about because it seems so clinical and standardized. We talk about it in an interview. Oh, I have death threats. Oh, it's very sad. But when you think about it, it's actual human beings describing to me how they would like me to die or how they would like to kill me. And I'm a child sitting at my home and it's horrifying. It was horrifying. And I, I, I just didn't like, To get on a strategy meeting with your lawyers and talk about how you are going to walk around your community to ensure that you're safe is horrifying. And to not go into grocery stores without your friends or to worry about every little detail of your life is so stressful and scary. And to no surprise at all, receiving hundreds of death threats is a difficult experience, but it's difficult because there's this dichotomy of how you feel you should be feeling which is one i can't i can't show that it's working there's no way these people are getting to me i'm fine this is fine and then there's the more genuine real part of what's happening which is just fear and is heartbreak and it is overwhelmed because you didn't know you were signing up for this you didn't intend for any of this to happen you, you, You want to be able to go to CVS without someone cornering you in a parking lot. You want to be able to go to Publix without someone yelling at you as you're entering the bathroom. Like you want to be able to live a a functional life. And it was so horrifying. And it became even more horrifying when it started involving my parents because Mm -hmm. Moritz is not a common last name. And so when you have local businesses with Moritz plastered on the front that are also very easily Googleable, what started happening is people would go into my parents' places of work and yell let them or try and start debates about me or fight them about me and I it, it, I just started wearing hats everywhere um, after the speech because oh if anyone sees the curly hair it could be a fight it could be a problem um, I stopped going out alone I stopped going to school for a while just because it became so crazy and negative there it was I can't even I don't even mm-hmm. have words I just can't receiving I have never this has been the most difficult experience in my life, and I just – I'm never shocked, but am repeatedly heartbroken by how evil people can be.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I can only imagine what that's been like for you, and I was going to ask about your family. How was their reaction to all of this, and they were victimized as well?
1: Uh, I think, honestly, the death threats to me and so my family brought us closer. How can it not? It's hard for other things to matter when – you're worried for your life, It sounds. It, it's so difficult to talk about. I'm sorry, this is going to be the least productive part of our conversation, but it's just so hard for me to find a way to explain it because it's exactly what it sounds like. You're literally worried for the well-being of your family and for yourself. And so you're no longer going to bicker about little things. You come together and it, it definitely brought us closer. That's the silver lining, if there is any. But it was just... For a couple months, I was just on edge and mm-hmm. I'm still a little bit on edge. I'll tag someone on an Instagram post and that person will let me know a couple of days later that a bunch of people sent them horrible messages and now I just feel guilty and now I feel bad. And it's just, I, I, I no longer do something without thinking about the consequences of it. Not that I ever should have, but I just live my life very on edge.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, your graduation speech also got some attention. Uh, So talk about that and how you navigated that one because you were were essentially told you cannot talk about any of this in the speech, right?
1: Yeah. So principal again sat me down for another shocking meeting after the Don't Say Gay walkout was attempted to be censored. So after my meeting with my principal for the Don't Say Gay walkout and after I knew that a culture shift had happened and we were no longer – in the same place. And we no longer had that same relationship. I, mm-hmm. I knew that I could trust him in that way, but I still did not expect what happened in our second meeting, which was him letting me know that as class president, giving my class president speech, I could not reference my identity or my activism so far as it related to being queer. And the reason for that was that it would upset the ceremony for families that deserve to have a good time and that it wasn't appropriate for a school setting. And to be told that your identity and your activism protecting your community is one, not worthy of celebration, and two, not appropriate for a community of scholars is earth shattering. And I left so angry, so sad, but mostly angry because how dare someone who is a leader of an educational community whose job is to create safety And productive, informative dialogue, ever say something like that, Mm -hmm. ever like that happen, especially because that law has not gone into effect. At that point, it is on your back, it is your fear. And I understand how horrifying that it must be for all administrators and all educators right now. I absolutely understand that. But we also have to apply that pressure to ourselves and remind ourselves how horrifying it is for the 12-year-olds right now, how horrifying it is for children who are experiencing this. So if you are going to elect yourself to be a leader of these children, if you're going to put yourself in a position of power and authority over these children, then you have got to govern and lead and educate by example. You have got to resist this law in small ways, in ways that are safe for you, but you have to have to or you cannot be in Florida right now because there's too much at stake and there's nobody else who is there's nobody else who can enter into this fight. There's no other layers of interception. It is the students and it is the teachers that are going to save each other right now. And so you have to. And so to leave this room before the law has even gone into effect, I was furious. And so I immediately contacted the other organizers at the C Initiative because part of what has made us so effective over the last three years is our quick response model. Essentially, if anything happens in any of the areas where our organizers are, we all immediately tap into it and create a movement around it. And so in 24 hours, we had ordered 10,000 Sege stickers and we had created a, a campaign model to go with it. And then about a week later, I sent out a tweet announcing the movement and that explodes. That goes just more tremendously viral than I could have ever anticipated, and I think we hit millions and millions and millions and millions of impressions in the first like 24 hours. We raised fifty thousand dollars right away, like in, in the first 48 hours, and wow. it was just it was amazing. And we had to order another ten thousand stickers right after that, or fifteen thousand right after, and to keep meeting all the demand. And It was really affirming of what I have been saying and what I have felt and what I have known, which is that the student population of Florida is here to support one another and that these spaces of more progressive thought and of people that are ready to challenge the system exist and that they just have to be given the opportunity and the support and the resources to provide resistance and to give a movement in a fight and then they will. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what this initiative has done and has become known for is giving resources and support and community to students to be the activists and advocates that they always could be because Gen Z is not incapable. There is not a lack of agency or intelligence or confidence to create large-scale change. There's just a lack of resources and a lack of support. And so as an organization, I have drawn from C that support and I've also been able to provide it. And that happened here with this large movement. And as that's happening and as we're creating this large statewide campaign that's a reinforcement of student connect, I have to figure out how I'm, one, going to deliver speech that defends my human rights because I'm, I'm encouraging tens of thousands of people across the state right. to do this. I can't start a movement yep. and then not. Yep. And then, two, when – well, actually, I'll provide a piece of context here. This is a part of the story that doesn't get talked about a lot. As this is happening, so as the death threats are coming in, as I'm being literally attacked in grocery store parking lots, like I'm like people are coming up to me and I'm locking car doors as the community is devolving. And as the pressure is really, really present, a huge rumor starts that my principal is going to have to wear a bulletproof vest at graduation. And so then there becomes this huge panic of, oh, my God, there's going to be a shooter and so families start telling their extended families traveling not to come. And students are telling their parents oh, don't come gosh. to education anymore. And the entire community is losing their minds. And so our school board and our principal, instead of affirming that, I'm not wearing a bulletproof vest. There is not going to be a shooter. They instead decide to bring additional security to the graduation. And it feels like you're entering a war zone instead of a celebration. And anyone who says that they're a guest of mine gets double searched. And I had one of my lawyers get pulled out of the room during the ceremony because earlier he had said that he was a guest of mine and they wanted to double check something. It was the most disorganized and dangerously orchestrated mess I've ever seen. And so as this is happening, I'm becoming very aware that if I do give my original speech, if I do openly discuss my identity in this law, there is real, there's re- there's a real chance something terrible happens. I, I didn't know what, and I still don't know how to articulate the emotions that were present. But when you're watching a community devolve like that and when you're watching the threat of death just be so prominent, there's no way I was taking that risk. It felt as though something could really happen. And so I had to sit there and I had to think, how am I going to defend my rights and protect myself and my community? Because as much as this has been a heartbreaking experience, there are still hundreds of my friends who deserve to have this celebration that we've all worked for four years to earn. We deserve that. I'm not going to take that away from myself or from them. We're going to enjoy this. We deserve this. And so the way I decided to meet this intersection of goals was through a metaphor. I discussed my curly hair as My sexuality, I discussed how it was difficult to have curly hair in Florida because of the environment. I discussed how I tried to straighten who I was, and I discussed how (laughs) this part of humanity is just a human characteristic. And, And I decided on this metaphor for two reasons. The first was that my sexuality, quite like my hair, is a human characteristic. It is a biological part that makes Xander, Xander. It is a part of am. it deserves respect, it deserves love, and it is not some elected personality trait. And the second important reason that I chose this metaphor was that throughout history, the queer community has relied on coded communication to create community and to convey identity. And I I think that this was the best way I could express that we are literally moving backwards through history. We are having to revert to old tactics of communication because it's no longer safe to be an out queer person in Florida. And it was a really surreal speech to have to write uh, because of the constraints I had to write the entire speech in a day. And it was really heartbreaking and empowering to clarify the narrative for myself and for my community and just put a period on what was easily the most difficult four months of my life. Yeah.
0: No kidding. But brilliant. Brilliant. Bravo. So tell us about the initiative that you started and how most importantly, our listeners can help
1: Absolutely. So the Social Equity and Education Initiative, if you search Social Equity and Education Initiative, you will arrive at our website, has existed for several years. And because of all of this attention and resourcing that we've had over the last year, we've been able to position ourselves really incredibly in the state of Florida with youth organizers to do some really amazing things over the next couple of years. We're going to be opening up a physical space in Florida, and we're going to be opening up our physical hubs where we're going to run civics education programming and where we're going to run advocacy models and power spheres where we're going to do community action projects and disruptive protesting all of the time so we can create real community movements and we're also going to run large-scale voter registration campaigns. Next year we look to register about 25,000 youth voters which will be more than every single other voter registration organization in Florida combined and so If you want to support this work or if you want to get involved in this work, go to socialequityandeducation.org. That will eventually be cinitiative.org, but just look up our initiative and we'll be there. You can also find us on Instagram at cinitiative and our email is team at cinitiative.org. We are there. Really just look it up and you can also find me uh, at xandermoritz at gmail.com and also at xandermoritz on Twitter, Instagram, everything is just my name. And if you reach out to me or you reach out to anyone on the team, we will connect you to what you can do or how you can help. If you go to our website, there is a get involved page. There's a donate section. There are just so many ways that you can help push this fight forward because we have a very full plate over the next two years and as we're building up to this presidential election, we need to create a better political culture in Florida, and we need to engage youth across the state of Florida so that we can see a political shift in what is happening. And the only way we can make that happen is through support. And so please do, whether it's your time, energy, or money, we we need it.
0: Fantastic. And if you miss any of those websites, we'll have them on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. You can look, just click show notes at the top of the page, and we'll have all of those links Xander Morix, wow, you are some impressive guy, my friend. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And, and just do great work for us at Harvard and with this initiative. We'll look forward to great things.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you for having this conversation with me and giving a place to share that story.
0: Wow. He's really an impressive young man, isn't he? Well, as October is LGBT History Month, I invite you to join me next Sunday night for an Outbeat Extra edition of Outbeat News In Depth. I'll be talking with LGBT historian and author Eric Marcus. We'll be celebrating LGBT history in the 1970s. That's next Sunday night at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutBeatNews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com.
1: i love to change the world But I don't know who-
0: Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air chilled, non GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at RockyandRosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roner Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.